Well, thanks, Jack. It's uh, good to gather together uh, and look at God's Word. It was interesting, this past week, um, Thursday, I woke up and had my first bout in my life of vertigo, where I kept walking to the left and I couldn't stop. Uh, I ran into the wall trying to get out of our bedroom, and I didn't know I was going to be standing here uh, today, and I'm just glad and thankful for God and his, his provision. Uh, I bet Todd's probably even more thankful than I am. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> But it, it's just good to see God's hand even in the midst of difficulty. And that's kind of where we are in the book of Acts, is this amazing advancement of the gospel, yet really a sobering uh, atmosphere in which it goes out. And so the book of Acts, how the gospel has expanded from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, the regions around, and to the ends of the earth, well, that's us. We're the ends of the earth, and this is the beginning of the story of how the gospel came to us. And so we're in chapter 14, uh, and we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at the first 20 verses uh, and, um, and then pick up the rest of the chapter as we go. But it's a story of the gospel and its reach into people's lives, yet it's not without opposition. And so if you would, would you stand with me as we just submit ourselves to the word of God? God is speaking and we long to hear from him. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now at Iconium, there they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in, in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews uh, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, in cities of Lyconia uh, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting, uh, a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice. Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, be in our midst? Would you speak by the power of the Spirit? Would you convince us of your goodness? Father, help us to see and understand the amazing truth that you are the living God and we find our life in you. Father, I pray that we would, uh, as your people, uh, not miss the fact that life is found in much more than our comfort, in our security, in our well-being, in our nice, tidy-looking lives. Father, what would it be to us to be so wrapped up in pursuing your kingdom that regardless of what happens in our life, that we find our joy in you and we are strengthened in our faith of who you are. So, Father, be in our midst and uh, speak to us by your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever been on any kind of hike or anything, and you've seen a sign that says, caution, proceed at your own risk, right? Uh, And, you know, some people would conclude that you should never go past a sign that says that. While others would say, you know, if you're not taking some risks, you're really not living, are you? Uh, The sign doesn't say, don't go beyond here. But it does indicate that risk and potential danger await on the other side. And that the people who own or manage whatever location have put the sign up, they cannot keep you from harm if you go past there. So to pass this sign, you recognize the potential harm that may come to you, but you are knowingly taking the risk in order to enjoy what's on the other side. So a sign like this may be at the path of a dangerous cliff, you know, one that has this amazing overlook. Proceed at your own risk, the sign might say. Or an amazing stretch of road where a cyclist would want to speed down at the top of the hill. Proceed at your own risk. It reminds me of one of the scenes of uh, the movie Cool Runnings uh, and uh, Cool Runnings where a former Olympic bobsledder has begrudgingly uh, been convinced to start the original Jamaican bobsled team. And uh, th- this, this character, this coach is played by John Candy and so you can just, that puts it in full character. Uh, and so there's a room of potential recruits and, uh, and John Candy is up showing an introductory movie of the bobsled to a room full of Jamaican hopeful Olympians. 
right? He says, in a bobsled, you're trying to get a sled from, uh, to the bottom of an icy chute. You're zigging. You're zagging. It's the biggest, coldest roller coaster you've ever been on. And so in attempt to dissuade all of these potential recruits, because he really didn't want to coach this team, he's showing this movie full of bobsled crashes. He says, oh yeah, one minor drawback to this delightful winter sport is the crash. Always remember, your bones will not break in a bobsled. No, no, they shatter. So, who wants in? And the lights come up and they pan back to the room of which there's an empty room except for one guy who is running the projector. So, who wants in to this crazy sport that we call bobsled, but potentially for the, the, the opportunity to represent your country in the Olympics? In a sense, proceed at your own Risk. And while we tend to categorize that the warning as some sort of thrill-seeking activity, I wonder if we should put a sign like that up at the gateway of following Jesus. Proceed at your own risk. Because to follow Jesus is to incur the same risk that he incurred. Jesus said to his disciples, as they hated me, so they will hate you. Now, who wants in? It's interesting because uh, is how we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to say, wait, you know, don't say that because nobody will follow Jesus. But to trust in Christ and to follow him, you will experience a joy that cannot be found in the safe place of this life. The safe place of self-indulgence. The safe place of your own personal comfort. That joy, though, in order to find that in the life that Jesus offers, you must, as Jesus would say, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, and whoever finds his life will lose it. There is a joy not yet experienced uh, by those who have uh, stayed on the safe side of proceed at your own risk. There is a joy of following Jesus that cannot be quantified by the self-indulgent, comfortable life. Jesus says, proceed at your own risk. But there's a joy that is well beyond the danger. So when we say proceed at your own risk, look at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. They speak boldly and God honors uh, their efforts. Verse 3, they they remained there for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Uh, and God granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. You know, a chapter earlier at the end, it says that I will make you, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. Salvation will come to the ends of the earth. That sounds wonderful. Until you put it in context of reality of how that plays out. And that you know uh, that the gospel 
divides. Look at verse 2. Because of their bold witness, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Go down to verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. So the people are stirred up against them. Some are with the apostles, some are against them. Uh, And have you ever noticed that the name of Jesus elicits a response? We talked about this a couple months ago, that, you know, just the name of Jesus, people will either respond warmly or they will scoff. Quite often, there's not like a middle ground when you start to speak about the name of Jesus and begin to explain the gospel of salvation by grace to somebody you might get, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? It's at these points that we feel the divide that Jesus creates. And you already know it. It's why we intuitively resist or shrink back from speaking of the hope that we have in the gospel. You know, why do we, why do we not speak? Is because we know the gospel divides. You know, think of our country. Christian values are no longer supported and looked at with admiration. Well, at least some of them are, but some aren't. You know, ones that are scoffed at or the ones that pertain to sexuality and identity. How could we be so narrow and judgmental in our thinking? The gospel divides but not only know that we need to know that the gospel divides, but the, that we need to know that the gospel brings trials. And so uh, in verses 5 and 6, so not only was the city divided, what happens in verse 5 is, is amazing, that there was an attempt, attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, by their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them. So there was an attempt to stone Paul and Barnabas, literally pick up stones, uh, throw them at them to their harm and to their death. Well, Paul and Barnabas in verse 6 learn of it, and they flee to another city, Lystra and Derbe and cities of Laconia and the surrounding country. They they fled to other cities. Look at um, a passage at the very end of what we read in verse 19. So they go to Lystra. They go to the next city. What happens to them there? Verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, those were surrounding cities, and having persuaded the crowds, they actually stoned Paul. So they attempted to stone him in verse 5 in in one city. He runs to the next city and they actually stone him, drag him out of the city, supposing that he was dead, they leave him there. And even in, as, as he wasn't actually dead, when his friends come around him and, and he gets up and he walks, he goes back into the city. Uh, they go on to Derby, And then in verse 21, what does, he, what does he do there? When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, and get this, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's not without trials. It's not without opposition uh, that the gospel c- comes and that we trust in Christ. Quite the opposite. 
as we speak boldly, it will divide people against us. It will create hostility against the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel pushes against the message of the world. And quite often, uh, quite often we will incur tribulations. In so doing, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting. Well, my girls for school, they, uh, they were reading a, a book about Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew was uh, a man who smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain during the height of the Cold War. And there's this one uh, story in particular that gets repeated often about his life. Uh, and on this occasion, he was approaching the Romanian border in his car. His car was stock full of, of Bibles, uh, of which they were illegal and outlawed in, uh, uh, in uh, that part of the, of the world. And so as he was approaching the Romanian checkpoint, he realized that they were not just searching cars, they were stopping people and uh, at, at times taking cars apart, looking for contraband entering their country. And so he was about fifth in line as he watched the four cars in front of him get searched. The one in front of him, they searched for an hour. And he's praying. He says, God, what am I going to do? And as he prayed, the idea came to him. He says, I know that no amount of cleverness on my part can get me through this border search. Dare I ask for a miracle? Let me take some of the Bibles out and leave them in the open where they will be seen. So he puts the Bibles on the front seat next to him as he approaches the checkpoint. And the guards usher him forward. He says, I handed them my papers, started to get out, but the guard's knee was against the door holding it closed. And then the guard looked at Brother Andrew's passport, abruptly waved him on, and he started his engine and started to move. He started to wonder, when are they going to stop him and pull him over and search his car? And it never happened. He just kept driving, and they stopped the car behind him and searched that one. He said, I coasted forward with my foot poised on the brake, and nothing happened. I looked out of the rear rear view mirror, and the guard was waving the next car to stop. God had cleared the way for Brother Andrew. And so there are stories like that, and that's just one of many of people on the field where God delivers them in some miraculous way. And then you get uh, Andrew Brunson, who was wrongfully, uh, wrongfully accused and arrested, a missionary pastor in Turkey. He was arrested in October of 2016, detained in a Turkish prison for more than two years He was held in a prison cell uh, with 21 other prisoners in a cell that was meant for eight people. He lost over 50 pounds when he was in prison, yet he was released. There's people in Nepal, and one I read about uh, uh, in in Nepal, this woman was actually stoned by her neighbor uh, for uh, starting a church in her house. This is what she says. She says, Uh, one writer speaking of her, that she still finds it difficult to speak after literally being stoned. This has happened last year. She wants to forgive her neighbor who who she believes will come to know Jesus one day. 
So God may, like Brother Andrew, usher you through a checkpoint in Romania. He may allow us to be detained. He may allow uh, harsh treatment to come from our neighbors. But verse 7 falls right in the middle of all of that, right in the attempt to stone Paul and Barnabas. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You would think the gospel, they, they, they speak boldly, uh, opposition comes against them, harsh treatment comes against them, they nearly lose their life. All right, we'll take a break. They go to the next city and they continue to preach the gospel. Life for them was much more than comfort. They were seeking a joy that earthly pleasure and earthly ease could not offer them. They were seeking the kingdom of God. And so uh, when we uh, think through what it is to proceed at our own risk, understand that there is a joy unspeakable that goes well beyond opposition and hardship. What were they doing? They were pointing people to the living God. They were pointing people to the living God. So in verses 8 through 10, they go to Lystra, and there was a man sitting there uh, who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and could never walk. He hears Paul speaking. Paul looks at him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul says, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began to walk. Well, when this happens, where the city sees an amazing miracle, and they try to worship Paul and Barnabas, they, as if the gods, uh, the Roman and Greek gods, had come down to them. Uh, they think one is Zeus and one is Hermes, and they offer to worship these men. But what's interesting is in the context of pointing people to the living God, what do we see is that we all are worshiping something. So these people, it says in uh, verse, uh, verse 12, that Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Even in verse 13, uh, they bring... Uh, out from uh, the temple, they bring oxen and garland and wanted to make a sacrifice to him. Uh, that they're worshiping, even though they're not worshiping the, God, the living God of the Bible, they're worshiping something. And that the, the truth is that even when people are worshiping things other than the God uh, that made the world, they are worshiping something. We are all worshiping something. We are all worshipers. Ted Schofield is a writer, and he was writing about uh, a, a famous kind of literary genius of our day, David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace was not a God-fearing man, but he was a great thinker. It's been said about him that he delivered the greatest graduation speech of all time at Kenyon College in 2005. And he says this in one, of, one part of his uh, commencement address to these graduates. He said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. He says, and this is a, not a God-fearing man, everybody worships. The idea of worship being an extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to something. Uh, one professor of uh, psychology, Matt Rosano, he said this. He said, I'm sympathetic to the view that humans will, 
either by design or default, end up worshiping some God, and he has a little g on God. If by God we mean that to which we willingly offer service and willingly offer sacrifice in exchange for a sense of meaning and purpose. Again, not a man who is a God-fearing man recognizes that we are all willing and, and we all worship something. Back to David, David Foster Wallace in that commencement address. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, again, he says little g, or spiritual type to worship, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, he says. Sadly, a couple years after he gave that commencement address, he took his life. And his last words were what he said in that commencement address. His last words were, something will eat you alive. Because even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure that you are worshiping something and you are seeking something to fill the void in your life and in your soul. He recognized it. Many others in our world recognize it. And God himself is saying that we are worshipers. Some worship God himself, some worship a God of this world, some worship themselves, worship their kids, worship something in this world like success or wealth or possessions or achievement or pleasure. What has your attention? What are you worshiping? What are you longing for? What are you seeking to satisfy your soul? If it is anything other than the living God, I agree with David Foster Wallace that it will eat you alive. Because everything else, as Romans 1 would say, that we worship it and we serve it. It, We become slaves to the things that we worship unless they are a, a, a good God of our life. Everything else is a tyrant except the living God. It will eat you alive. Because what is true is not just that we are worshipers, but we are all searching for the living God. Look at verses 14 to 18. So when, uh, when the, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, heard of them trying to worship them, right? Uh, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. What Paul is saying, what they're saying there is that the the turning from vain things, things other than the living God that we serve and worship 
and turning to a living God, the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. He points to the patience of God. Isn't that an amazing verse in verse 16? That God, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them, would allow the nations to walk in their own ways. But yet, verse 17 is still true. I'm going to allow the nations to walk in their own ways, but verse 17 He gives them rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, and he satisfies their hearts with food and gladness. That is confounding. God allows people to walk away from him, yet even in his common grace on this world, gives them rain and food and gladness. We are all searching for the living God, but so often, isn't it true, when we get food and get fruitful seasons and get the glad things of this life, it doesn't drive us to God. It drives us more and more into self-reliance. Like, look at this. This turned out really well for me. Look what I did. Look at my life. And yet God's hand and his grace is meant to draw us to him, to the one that we're all searching for. I love the, back in verse 11, where they say, when Paul and Barnabas do this amazing uh, miracle of healing, they say that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. As if that was an amazing thing. Because it is. And it's what we celebrate at Christmas. They're recognizing the gods in the heavens don't come in and take on human flesh. And they're like awestruck over it. And yet that's exactly the move that the living God made in the person of Jesus. That he comes and takes on flesh. Because we are searching for the living God. The only one who can fill the hole in our heart. In that incessant feeling of that nothing is enough. No matter what you get, no matter what you chase after, nothing is enough and you need more. The only thing that can fill that is the living God. Everything else will eat you alive. And so as they see in verse 1, a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. As they see in verse, uh, verse 21, that they preached the gospel and that they made many disciples. As they saw the effect of verse 22, that they strengthened the souls of the disciples. What happens? At the end of all of this, they go back to Antioch for a missions trip report. Because remember, they were sent out from Antioch. They go all around the the Mediterranean region and they go back to Antioch in verse 26. They get there. And from there, they they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God. That means they were sent out for the work that they had fulfilled. 27, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, They declared all that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They declared all of what God did through his powerful witness of what they spoke and how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, to the ones who did not know the things of God. A joy that they, uh, the Gentiles would never have known unless Paul and Barnabas were willing to follow Jesus, uh, uh, unless they were willing to proceed at their own risk. 
unless they were willing to follow Jesus in the midst of opposition. The Gentiles in Lystra and Derbe, Iconium, and other cities, the Gentiles in Ermo and Chapin and Ballantyne would never have known the joy of what it is to understand the grace of God, the salvation of God coming in the person of Jesus to us. And for those who know Christ, are you willing to follow him regardless of what situational circumstance comes your way because you understand that there is a joy that exists that far exceeds even that? Are you following Jesus? Or have you created a nice, clean version of faith that cannot be found in the Bible? Let's pray. God, uh, give us faith. Father, give us faith to know that knowing you and following you, following you even into harm's way, even into difficulty and the divide that the gospel creates, God, there is a joy that far exceeds our comfort, our pleasure, and all the other things that we chase after, and Father, that eat us alive. And so, Father, I pray that you would draw us from these vain things to trusting in you, the living God. Father, grant us faith to trust you in that. Grant us eyes to see, possibly for the first time. God, if there's somebody in this room or on this podcast that have never trusted in you for salvation, God, by your Spirit, would you draw them that today would be the day of salvation, that they turn from vain things to trusting in you, the living of God, for their salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.